I'm Wes Moss, and I am here to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. To reach that many folks takes the work of more than just me or one person. And I have a fantastic team behind the Retire Sooner podcast. And I've decided to bring them in to help address some of the questions and topics that you've sent us. You're about to hear from my team members with answers that can hopefully help Americans retire sooner and happier. And I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. There are so many nuances in the world of investing. And here on the Retire Sooner podcast, we're trying to tackle different topics on each episode. Today, we're going to cover an investment product that our team here likes to use that's maybe not the most well-known, closed-end funds. If it's a new phrase you've never heard before, don't worry. We've brought in Eddie Gep to help give us an overview of what this is. Eddie Gep is a certified financial planner and works with capital investment advisors. Eddie, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me, Mallory. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. We were just talking right before this about the fact that we think you are the living persona of Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I appreciate that. I'll take that as a compliment because I love that should. show. Oh, it's such a good show. And he is such a great character. He's one of those people you, you want to know him in real life. So that's why I'm really excited to have you in here. I do. Maybe I need to work on my mustache. I should I should really grow that out, I guess. Yes, please. Listen, <laughs> I think I think you should embrace a stash personally. <laughs> For sure. I'll get right on it. <laughs> well, listen, um, before we start jumping into talking about closed end funds, I'm very excited to cover this topic with you today because it is something that I even today, I, having worked with this company for so long, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a nuanced topic, but I know that it's something that a lot of investors, and especially you know, do-it-yourself investors, a lot of people who are managing money on their own, that it's something that they're able to leverage, but that you really have to kind of know about it to get to to take part in it. That's absolutely right. So I'm I'm excited to cover that. But before we do that, I actually want to talk about something a little bit different. Um, you know, with happy retirees, mm-hmm. we often try to tell them that. As they are entering retirement, they might want to enter something we call the retirement gray zone, which is where you take a step back from your more nine to five and start instead focusing on making generating income, let's say, from from something that you might consider a core pursuit. And maybe maybe that's still like the work that you were doing with your nine to five, but it's just in a a less intense manner, um, right. or ideally, you know, it's something like becoming a golf pro if you love golf, like Eddie Gep happens to. I but, do love golf. <laughs> but interestingly, your wife actually has done something like this recently, hasn't she? That's true. That's true. Although I'm going to have a hard time calling her phase of life a retirement gray zone because she's working harder than she ever has because she's home now with both boys, Ooh. which I don't envy. Um, <laughs> but I'm super, super grateful for. Uh, yeah. But you're right. Actually, COVID, one of the, um, I'm going to call it one of my COVID silver linings was she decided to step back from the corporate world and pursue her passion in art. Oh, she's, wow. uh, yeah. She's painted really since she was nine years old. Her grandmother, her late grandmother, was a uh, fabulous artist and and painted her whole life. And Rebecca, as a child, used to paint with her grandmother. Oh wow! And so it's something she's done. And and we've featured pieces on you know in our home uh, for years. And people would ask where we got it, and I was always like proud to say that Rebecca had um, painted it. And so you know one of the things about COVID was you sort of rethought everything. Yeah. 
And so she decided to to start pursuing selling her art, um, you know, kind of in the in the secondary marketplace. And it was a it was kind of a big leap of faith because she just started through friends and family and word of mouth. And and actually, you know, I'm not a big social media person, but Instagram was a huge uh, way that she spread the word. And so she's since been picked up by an online gallery and kind of f- almost functions like an agent of her work. Um, and so she's featured on a nationwide um, wow. uh, virtual gallery. Wow. Uh, she now, and does. Hang on, and I got to say, yeah. it's amazing. If anybody wants to look up her artwork, it's what, what is her Instagram? Um, it's well, Rebecca Gep Art. Will you spell Gep for me? Absolutely. That's not the easiest one I know. No, so it's, no. it's Rebecca, R E B E C C A, Gep, G O E P P. Like Peter and Paul, I always say. Ah. Art, A R T. Okay, so. yeah. It's, y'all, you got to go and take a look at it. It is absolutely stunning. I, I follow her because I just love to see what she's putting out there. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So well, I appreciate that. Yeah. No. She does too. So you, I know you're saying she started at nine, but then what was the sort of the turning point for her? When did she decide that she was going to take that leap? Well, um, so it was probably the summer. It was probably like May or June of 2020. Okay, so, so we everybody's like, stuck at home. Exactly. <laughs> we were like three months into it. And one cool thing is my oldest son, he at the time was not yet five because he just turned six. So yeah, in, in the summer of 2020, he was still four. He has like dove right in to paint with her, Stop which is it. pretty cute. Yeah. Oh my God, that's precious. So they paint together and he gets really into it. And, um, and, and she loves it, obviously, because it's something that... You know, she learned from from her grandmother. And now she's passing it on to our to our son. So, um, you know, uh, that was that was really when she started the push. And then, so and it, did she to get started though? Because obviously, you know, you said she'd been painting for years at that point. Did she create the website or just the Instagram? Like, what was what was that? I guess, like, because I'm thinking about like for our listeners, if somebody is thinking about considering moving into that retirement gray zone and they want to pursue something like this. Maybe they've painted for years and they want to get yeah. started. Where, What do they do to get started? Yeah. So I, I think, um, well, and that's what's so interesting about social media and something that I've not never given it you know, enough credit, I think, is it, it has really removed a lot of barriers to entry for launching something like this, whether it's woodworking or whether it's art, you know, what, even music, right? It could be anything that you can put out there in a pretty, you know, cost-efficient manner. I mean, she didn't spend a whole bunch of money to create a website or, you know, she did it herself and, and she's, you know, pretty good at some of that stuff. So you might have a little bit of cost there if you're not comfortable with it. But, um, but she, and everybody kind of has some advantage, right? So like if you were a CPA in your, you know, nine to five life, you don't have to worry about setting that kind of thing up. Whereas, right. Know, that's true. That's very true. Just play um, to your strengths, right? So she, but she also had some pieces that she had done just over the years, right? As a, as a hobby that we were either featuring in our home or that she had just done for fun. Um, so she had a little bit of a portfolio that she was able to, to post immediately. Um, and then the other thing that she did that was really cool that I think, you know, anybody could do is for the, you know, first, I don't know, probably what felt like 30 or 40, um, pieces that she did for other people, she only charged her cost. So she didn't really make any money, but what she asked them to do is that they would share it in their networks. So it kind of spread quickly and, and virally, um, quite frankly, because she was started to get, you know, uh, messages and calls from people that she didn't know, but that knew someone she had done work for. Oh, that yeah, makes was, so much sense. That's it awesome. It was really neat. So it was kind of a, a way to, instead of spending money on marketing, she kind of cut her margin out 
covered her cost and then used that as her marketing budget, so to speak. That's brilliant. So that's a little bit of an idea, you know, but I, I do, I mean, I think that word of mouth and particularly with these days, how instantly connected everybody is, um, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a, it's a pretty easy or efficient way to get your, your body of work out there, whatever it may be. That's very cool. Well, and then let me ask you too, what, with what she's doing now, where she's watching the boys and she's creating art, I think you told me a little bit about this a little while ago, but what does that process look like for her? <laughs> well, so she is super, super organized, very, um, like the house is always, I mean, I think the house always looks great. You know, she would say that it's a mess. And I'm like, I'm looking for the mess still, <laughs> you know? So like every kind of area or aspect of her life is super orderly with the exception of her little studio that we have in the basement where she basically is like a typical artist where it's like just messy everywhere. You know, it's like the creative yeah, you, juices you start creative flowing. creative space to get a little messy. Um, so usually it's either while they're in school, um, you know, my oldest doesn't really nap anymore, but during nap time, you know, when they have like downtime or quiet time and then at night, and I'll tell you her secret at night is a uh, Taylor, a good Taylor Swift uh, <gasps> playlist. Yes. She'll fire that on. We've got, we've got a several be... ladies in here and they're all nodding their heads. It's, you, you can't go wrong with a little tea swizzle. Yeah. And I got to become a guilty pleasure of mine too, because I, you know, I probably wouldn't have started with it, but, uh, but I, I'll listen to it with her from time to time. And I, welcome I, to I'm the fandom. Fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> She's very talented. She's a feminist icon. I, I and I also appreciate that she writes her her own for the most part, like you know, writes her own music, which yeah, is um, super unique. Yeah. Uh, so that's you know that's kind of her her create that gets her creative juices going, and um, so it's usually you know late at night or maybe while the boys are in school. And then you all sit down and, and you get to like spend a little time with her in the studio sometimes, right? I do. I do. Typically that involves some wine. Um, <laughs> That's not a bad thing. And it's where I've picked up my, my admiration for T-Swift. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll watch her work and it's it she'll usually have multiple pieces going at one time oh. because a lot of it's la layered and I don't, I'm about to get into an area that I have no idea what I'm talking no, about, but a lot of it is layered. So okay. she'll have- Is it oils? It is oil okay. paint, yeah, on canvas. Okay. Um, okay. So like the 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 um uh, the frame or whatever is is like thick canvas. It's not like paper. Okay. Right. So um, but but she does you know different size pieces and whatnot. Um, so she'll have a bunch of them up and and she'll kind of paint uh over you know over across a bunch of different ones at different times and it allows like the first one to dry a little bit so that she can come back and again add that layer layering process into it. So she'll, she may be working on six or seven pieces at one time, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, I think kind of in the box and this is like a complete outside of the box type, you know, type thinking. So I, I think that's it. why they call it abstract. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, there you go. I think that's very true. Now, actually, and it's kind of funny. So you literally, you're a numbers guy and then, and she's like literally an artist now. So <laughs> <laughs> it is a, true that opposites attract. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, listen, now we are going to start talking about some numbers um, and bring it back around to maybe some things that you're a little bit more knowledgeable on as opposed to, you know, oil on canvas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I want to talk about closed-in funds. This is clearly a really complex topic, and I know there's so many weeds that we can sort of dive into um, with something like this. So I want to, but I want to take a step back. 
to understand something, you got to be able to explain it to a five-year-old, right? So let's let's take it to that five-year-old level. I am the five-year-old here. Explain <laughs> to me what in the world what in the world is a closed-end fund? I like that. All right, so let's think about a closed-end fund like a a bucket, like a Home Depot bucket that you put assets in, and an asset, as you know, could be anything. Right. Okay. We're it talking stocks, we're st- talking bonds. Stocks, bonds, real estate. Okay. Right. Now, like a, a REIT or like any kind of real estate? Um, so like a REIT. Yeah, okay. that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, like a REIT. So you put those assets inside that bucket and then you put a top on that bucket. Okay. So then you've got- a, do, you, do you shake up the bucket? You can shake up the bucket, <laughs> mix, mix and match. Uh, so then you've got a value that, that consists of whatever stocks that you put in or bonds into that bucket. Okay. That They have a value. Then that bucket gets traded on the secondary market, just like a stock would get traded on the okay. secondary market. Yeah. So you can buy and sell. So just just like in, anywhere you would normally buy a stock, essentially? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Okay. So Charles Schwab, Fidelity Investments, wherever you use your, whatever trading platform you use, um, you can, you know, willing buyer, willing seller, you know, you put your order in and somebody else is putting their, their buy order in. Um, what that creates, though, is a dislocation between the price that that bucket's being transacted at and the bucket itself. So to give you an example, be like um, if, you know, you had a house that um, maybe market value was worth, I don't know, $400,000, but you had uh, a family that was moving in that really, really, really wanted to live in your neighborhood, and they were willing to offer you 500000 Well, you're, you're gonna, as, as the owner of the house, you're like, well, that's a really good deal, and no one else is offering me 400000 so I'm going to sell it to the person offering 500000 Even though that person, they want to live there, they might buy it for five hundred, and no other house in the neighborhood trades up to five hundred. Might they might all stay at four hundred? So now that person has certainly overpaid, but you're of course going to sell it to that person who was willing to pay you more. That makes so sense. That's just, that you know a dislocation between price and value, right? That exists in every market. Yeah. Um, this one just happens a lot, and it happens very frequently, and it happens you know on a you know minute by minute basis. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, now let me ask you. I'm assuming you're saying that because the the holdings within the bucket are worth so much. And then so but people are willing to buy or sell the bucket at a different price just depending I guess on what their needs are. Well, so yeah, or depending on where they bought that bucket itself mm-hmm. or where that bucket has moved, right? So the bucket oh, the bucket oh, itself, true. you know, is comprised of assets that are being traded on a daily basis okay. too. Mm-hmm. So they you might see a, a the value of the bucket go up, but the price might stay the same. You know, some people might not be watching it. Right. Oh, you know, there, there's a, a of ton of, of, of reasons why there might be some dislocation in, in the price relative to the value. And that's why it's really important if you're participating in this market that you're paying very close attention. That actually was one of my questions. I wanted to know, is this a more passive investment strategy or very active? Very active. Oh, so okay. so this is not something that you would necessarily buy and just hold forever. OK. I mean, you could. You could. But there tends to to. Um, creep in some risks that are, are different than just buying like your S&P 500, you know, mutual fund or ETF or whatever it might be and just holding it forever. Okay. Um, and that, that really probably plays into the structure of, of how this, this um, product is built uh, because they're, you know, we're, we've talked about the bucket itself with the, the assets in the bucket, the tops on the bucket, so they're not I, making any new buckets. I am all about some buckets right <laughs> now. <laughs> love the buckets. Somebody's going to go to Home Depot. After, oh, actually, I might go to Firehouse. You know, they got the pickle buckets. <laughs> they do, those, that's a lot of pickles. Yeah. All right. So 
So we know that there are these price discrepancies, and you're saying it's a little bit more of an active strategy. So I guess I, I just want to know, like, who's who's participating in this market? Who's purchasing these? Well, you know, this this is um, a market that I think is very attractive to a lot of retail investors, uh, namely because of the yields associated with the these closed-end funds and yields. Well, and when when you say like retail investors, are we talking about like I guess you, you're just talking about like anybody, right? Like any, it's it's. Anybody, yeah. So what I the, let's I would say that the folks that probably are not participating too often are like big pension funds. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah. I guess this is a better way to probably define it. All right. So yeah. the pension guys are out. They think it's a little bit too. I guess I can see why they would think it's a little too risky. That's typically so. A more there's some risk there. Way. I think the other big reason is because they tend to make very very large purchases oh. or very very large sale, sales. Yeah. So it's huge orders. This market is something that's not. That's a little bit more niche or a little bit more more it's a it's a more succinct it's not a lot of liquidity Mm -hmm, meaning mm -hmm. if you put two if you if you just put a large buy order in you could very easily move the market so you could move that price so you're asking like why there might be some some price fluctuation if someone puts too big of an order in then because there's so much buy influence on the, the, the bid and the ask that it's going to slowly creep up or sometimes quickly creep up the, the price of the underlying fund. So even though we've got a fund that's worth, we'll just go back to the dollar. So fund is worth a dollar. If someone if, is trying to buy too much of it, it's going to naturally bid up the, the price. Just like if you were selling your $400,000 house and there were 10 people that were willing to offer you 500000 you might say, well, who anybody willing to offer me 500000 501,000, 502,000, right? And it's going to uh-huh. bid up the price of your house. Same thing is happening here. Okay. Okay. So we know who's not purchasing these closed end funds, right? We're talking about like the pension companies. Now, but coming back to who is, you know, you're saying the retail investor, I. I don't understand who else is really participating. So potentially some do-it-yourself um, investors out there that are very savvy and maybe looking to pick up some income. Mm. Okay, so income-oriented or Our investors. Our happy retirees on the Retire Sooner Network love income. Keep going. It, exactly, as do we here at Capital. So um, they, these yields or, or the income, the distributions that these are paying. So so income, so when we say yield, that could be a dividend, could be interest, could be a distribution. So all of that is income, new money coming into you. So a yield is just a measure of how much income you're getting. The yields on these closing funds are quite high generally. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Can you give us any kind of idea of how high is high? <laughs> well, today, 2% is pretty high. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the yields on these things can be anywhere from like 6 to 8%. Whoa, yeah. whoa. That feels super high. It is. And part of the reason is because these, these funds use leverage or they use debt. Okay. Um, hang on. Give, give me a little bit more here. What? So um, how how do they do that? I thought it was just a bucket that holds you know stocks, bonds, and real estate. It is. It is. But when you when you lever it up, particularly with cheap debt, you're getting an enhanced distribution or enhanced yield. So yeah, this sounds dangerous. It can be. It certainly can be. So just like I always love talking about debt because I I liken debt to a fire. If it's used properly, it can heat your whole house. But if it gets out of control, it could burn your house down. Mm. So in the same way that you, you know, you've got to be careful using debt in your personal financial situation, you need to be careful buying these closed-in funds that are using debt to enhance some of these yields. How is it that these funds are able to leverage debt? Can you give us an example? Yeah. So um, the way I'd like to think about this or, or maybe explain this is 
Um, if you think about, I, I feel like a lot of people are more comfortable with a real estate analogy. And yeah, so, yeah. I feel like that's so much easier for me to wrap my head around sometimes because like the markets are just, it's such a um, pie in the sky concept. There's nothing like, you know, like physical and you can talk about a paint bucket all day long, but it's a little bit harder yeah. to grasp, right? Everybody got, and lives in a lot house of people. Yeah. A lot of people have, have, have personal experience with, you know, a mortgage. Yeah. And so we, let's use that for example. Okay. So let's say that you have a million dollars. Okay. Oh, it's a good day, y'all. It's a good day. It's a good day. (laughs) You got a million dollars that you want to devote to buying real estate. So let's say that you're looking at one million dollar property. Okay. Again, great day. Great day, y'all. Great day. You're gonna buy a million dollar house with your million bucks. (laughs) You can buy one house for a million bucks, right? You use your million dollars of equity Mm -hmm. to get your million dollar house. Oh, y'all! I'm very excited. This place looks great. (laughs) Well. not as good as it used to look. <laughs> million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to, folks. True. But so so you so we follow that, right? You have a million bucks, you buy a million dollar house. Now let's say that you wanted to use leverage, you know, or use debt. Okay, so debt and leverage are kind of synonymous with each other. So let's say you wanted to use leverage. Well, as most folks know, the the requirement we're going to use normalized times. The the normalized requirement for down payment is twenty percent. So you could take your million dollars and you could buy five million dollar homes by putting two hundred thousand down on each home. Okay. Now instead of having one million dollar house with your million bucks, you have five million dollar homes with your million bucks, and then another eight hundred thousand dollars worth of debt on each home. So now you've got five million dollars worth of real estate. You've got a million dollars of equity in there. And then you've got um, $4 million worth of debt or mortgage payment, you know, that you're now responsible for. So you've increased your asset value, but you've also increased your debt. So you're not going to obviously live in all five of those homes. So let's say you rent out four of them. Okay. I mean, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So you're renting them out at, let's just say $5,000 a month times four. So now you're making $20,000 a month in cash flow with that same million dollars that you would have otherwise only been able to make $5,000 on. Wow. Right? Okay. Do you follow? Yeah. So it's the same t- same concept of using leverage inside of this closing fund, but just instead of a stock or a bond, think of a home, think a home, or sorry, instead of your home, a rental property, think stocks and bonds. Interesting. So okay, you're able to use really... less equity, buy more assets, which in turn is generating you more in, more income in totality. So that's very, very powerful. Most listeners remember very closely or remember very intimately the 2008-2009 great financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Actually, especially when you start talking about mortgages and whatnot, that gets a little, it gets a little scary. I think it's pretty hard to not feel a twinge of fear. Which is why you have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. So in 2008 and 2009, if you had equity in your home or said another way, not too much debt on your home, you didn't lose your home. The bank didn't foreclose on you because you had equity in your home, right? The bank foreclosed on you because you weren't able to service your debt payments. So debt payments, or when debt gets too out of hand or too um, unmanageable, that's where it can be, become very destructive. So the example I just gave you um, of, of buying $5 million homes with your million dollars of equity and $4 million worth of debt sounds great because now we have $20,000 of monthly cash flow instead of five, okay? until the value goes the other way on you. Because if you all of a sudden lose, start losing equity value in your real estate, 
which can happen. I know it doesn't happen a lot, but it can happen. Yeah, now, we've seen it happen. Everybody's now you, that. you feel that pinch of the debt payment. Mm. The same thing happens with these closed-in funds, which is why you really have to monitor and, and manage the amount of debt. When you, By manage, I mean you just need to be very cautious of what you're buying, those closed-in funds that you're buying, how much debt they're using that the fund itself oh. is using to enhance some of these returns. Well, and especially because when we're talking about stocks and bonds, obviously those are more likely to decrease in value as opposed to the real estate market. So I can see how that would potentially offer an additional level of risk. Well, that, that's that's absolutely right. Now, said a different way, they they can deteriorate in value quicker, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes because they're priced every second. Oh my gosh! Instead yeah. of a real estate transaction, which is priced every couple of years, maybe every couple <laughs> of years, maybe exactly. That's exactly right. So you have quicker moves to the up and downside, but then also what happens is let's in- introduce a little behavior, you know, investor psychology, and they start to see a little red in their portfolio, and they all start hitting sell button. Right. Yeah. Again, something else that we've all seen happen too in the recent past. So, so then it becomes a little self self fulfilling, right? So if, if everyone's selling, then the price is going to further go down, and if the price is going down, i.e., the equity inside that fund, the the leverage that you have if it's not properly managed makes the the downward push on the value of your fund even even more. So to give you an example, in 08 and 09. Um, you know, equity markets, everybody knows, was down about 40%, 45%, depending on which index you were looking at. Well, if you added leverage to that, that could further exacerbate your downward your downward fall. So say, you know, your equity was down 40%, but if you had two times leverage, you might be down 80%. Oof, oof. So debt can be really powerful in the $5 million worth of real estate yeah. generating you $20,000 a month. Warming but up can, the whole house. Warming up the whole house. But it can also be very destructive. Instead of down 40, you're down 80, and you're, you're, you're burning your house down. Robert here with a quick answer to a question I heard recently. A topic that comes up a good bit while working in RIA is diversification. So when is a portfolio properly diversified? Or when is a stock allocation properly diversified? And the, the problem with this question is, is everyone's got an answer, but there's no, there's no perfect solution to what is diversification. What we like to use as a general rule of thumb is around 30 stocks. And there's been plenty of studies shown that 30 stocks will get you proper diversification if you at least pay attention to the sectors you're investing in. However, that's just for U.S. stocks. There are many other asset classes. There are many other countries. There are many other things that all play into diversification. So it's, it's a bit of a loaded question, but if we boil it down to just when is a stock portfolio diversified, a good rule of thumb is 30 blue chip stocks. I'm going to bring it back then to who's actually actively going out and purchasing these then? You know, from from what we've seen, I mean, so there are a lot of firms like ours that are out buying them. Okay, so so you know, money managers, registered investment advisors, they they buy them for their clients. Um, a lot of individual investors are out buying them because they can generate such nice, attractive yields. Um, you know, I so I think it it really is a combination of probably smaller institutions 
and then a lot of you know your your do it, your DIYers or your do it yourselfers uh, who are out there looking to enhance their their yields on their portfolio. That makes sense. Well, let me ask you too, because obviously you've worked with a lot of these folks. Do you have any examples of somebody who's maybe like successfully or even unsuccessfully, you know, dabbled in this market? Yeah. So there was a. Um, Let's see. I guess there was a closed-in fund that um, was uh, that was tied to, I believe it was tied to the energy markets. So again, inside the fund, it was energy assets that um, actually did okay. The energy assets themselves did okay, but there was so much leverage used on this fund that it wasn't able to keep up. In other words, the leverage kind of sunk or, or weighed down the underlying asset return. So what the, the returns weren't good enough to keep up with the amount of leverage costs that, that was that was on this particular fund. And so you actually saw assets going up, but the value of that fund, again, remember the dislocation we talked about earlier, the, the price of, of that fund was actually going down, it was kind of counterintuitive because the, the underlying asset values we're going up. Oh my gosh! So it was a kind of a unfortunate circumstance where you had um, sort of a, um, a a leverage issue, I guess you would say, um, because the the underlying the underlying value wasn't wasn't improving enough to keep up with the, the, the weight of the debt. That makes sense. Well, now, hang on. Do you, I know you've got some success stories or else people wouldn't still be using these though, right? <laughs> well, a lot of folks that were going back, let's go back to 08, 09, a lot of folks that were um, buyers of closed-in funds in that market were able to get, you know, let's say going back to that S&P 500 example, um, it was, you know, it, it was a real opportunity that you could buy the S&P 500 at, you know, 35, 40 cents on the dollar. What? So when the S&P 500 came roaring back, your fund came roaring back and then some. Oh, right? so, wow. Yeah. Again, yeah. Like then the some for too. sure. Absolutely. But it really just depends on what side of the, the transaction you're on at that at that time. And that so and I guess that's the case for any kind of investment you make. That's true. That's true. You know, the one thing with this that I would say, and you alluded to this earlier, it's why this is a little bit more of a, it's important that this is a little more of an active strategy that you don't just buy it and then just completely forget about it because there is so much that can happen that might not necessarily reflect what's happening with your underlying assets. Okay, that makes you know a lot of I mean? sense. That's so. interesting. Well, and actually, that that brings me to my next question. Um, you know, we're talking about active versus passive investing now, and so much of that comes back to your overall portfolio strategy and how you're investing. How would you consider someone including closed-end funds in their investment strategy? I'm assuming it's not 100% of like <laughs> someone's <laughs> no. strategy. That sounds very well, dangerous. It, I guess it depends on your, your stomach for risk, but yeah. that would be a pretty risky way to do it, I think. Um, you know, I think diversification is important. Like as we've been talking about, um, you can own a lot of different types of assets inside these closed-end funds. So you want to own some. I wouldn't just own one. I would own some that have stocks. I'd own some that own bonds. And you can own some that have, you know, international stocks or you can have some that own, you know, um, high yield bonds or some that own floating rate bonds. There's a lot of different types of bonds you can own inside these different funds. Oh my God, there's so many things to, there's so many things to here. consider. But I would say that you want to, just like you're building out a, a, a portfolio where you own a lot of different assets, you want to own a lot of different types of closed-end funds. So, oh, okay. And when I say types of closed-end funds, I'm just, I'm just re referring to the assets that are inside those funds. Okay. So you want to make sure you're diversified. But I think as I, I think about using a sleeve of closed 
those in funds as a yield enhancer. Oh, so going back to that income, okay. it's a way to... Is it kind of like to balance maybe your cash or your bonds? Very Exactly. So okay. particularly right now with cash, it doesn't really pay us anything. Ugh, no. Bond <laughs> yields are so low. Um, this is a good way to enhance that. Uh, almost if you think about like cash, obviously, is very low risk. And then bonds have a, have a variety of risks. Some are less risky than others. But generally speaking, usually th people think of bonds as a little bit less risky or more conservative. And then closed-in funds would be a riskier way. Now, I'm not saying it's, that it's super risky, and some closed-in funds are more risky than others. So you have to be really careful with, with what you're buying. But it's a way to increase your risk a little bit, but also enhance or increase your yield. So you're, instead of getting 2% from your, your conservative side of the portfolio, maybe now since some of those are yielding seven, eight percent, whatever, you know, it might be at the at the time that you purchase. Now all of a sudden you've got four percent instead of two because you've got a, a portion of that portfolio that's in that's yielding you, you know, dub, you know, triple or, or, or quadruple. But you don't want to go too heavy there because of all the reasons we were just talking about. That makes a lot of sense. That's very cool. Okay. Well and that I can see how that would be hugely beneficial to somebody who's focused on generating that income and increasing that yield. I'm I'm excited that that's an option. But again, this is something that is, there's a lot to dig into with this, but it's really interesting. But thank you so much for like walking us through it. It's interesting to hear exactly how this investment vehicle is available to folks um, and how a lot of, you know, do-it-yourself investors and just, I guess, all kinds of investors are really leveraging this to enhance their portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now that we've talked through the numbers, <laughs> now that we've talked through the numbers, I do want to ask you, as part of the Retire Sooner Network, we know that life is about a lot more than just numbers and money and investing, right? That's right. So, so we do have to ask you, what is something that has made you happy recently? Well, one one thing that actually that actually just happened that was super super exciting that I was so pr it was maybe more a moment of pride, but made me so happy was my six year old finally rode his. I say finally, he learned to ride his bike on his own, no training wheels, oh my gosh. no help starting, no help stopping. Made a turn in the cul-de-sac, and uh, I, I got to be honest with you, like it brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, as it should have. Well, okay, that makes me feel better because I <laughs> oftentimes feel like that um, the you know that the parents that cry over that stuff are like, I'm like, come on, he's riding a bike, that's good, you know. But when it happens, <laughs> it's it's really emotional. So it's like a a milestone of I think him growing up, and it's 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 all happening too fast. Oh, I love that. That is that is a really good happy moment for sure. Oh, that is really precious. I'm so excited. I'm so proud of him. Uh, me too. Me too. That's amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for digging in on this topic. I know it was not easy. Um, it's a complex topic for sure, but you broke it down for us really beautifully. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Mallory. I enjoyed being with you guys today. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. 
This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.